You're listening to the Our Eerie Podcast with Devonna Paisley, Marty Wachuku, and Lydia Lath. We're here to highlight community voices and bring new perspectives to the table. We are unpacking Eerie's and America's baggage. We're speaking truth to power. Take a seat. Welcome back to season two of Our Eerie. Right now you're hearing from Marty. Here with us is Lydia and Devana and special guest Jonathan. Um, We have a lot in store for you this second season, um, but we're going to get into it. Yeah, so we're super excited to have this conversation. I think Devana was the first person to bring up this topic like months ago and ever since she brought it up I've been dying to to talk about it and then when we finally set it on the books we're like we're gonna start off season two strong mm-hmm. uh and then immediately our minds went straight to to Jonathan and bringing him on on the podcast because uh well first of all when we first got started as a podcast Jonathan interviewed us for the eerie reader but on top of that like Jonathan is definitely well known within the community for writing uh, articles for the, for the Erie Reader and and really unpacking a lot of local history. And, and that's really important for us because today we are going to be talking about some of uh, Erie's historical heroes and, and maybe unpacking how heroic they actually were or weren't. Um, so Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Could you just give us a brief introduction of, of who you are, what you do, what you're passionate about? <laughs> Uh, yeah. Well, first, thanks for having me. This is cool. Um, last time, I feel like we should have recorded our conversation because it would have probably made a good podcast episode itself. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I I grew up in Cambridge Springs, so just south of here in Crawford County. Um, went to school at Edinburgh University. Um, ended up um, studying. I, actually, I ended up not going for teaching or history initially. Um, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. Like everything sounded interesting to me. So I ended up, I think, choosing history because it let me study and read about whatever interested me in that moment. I think that's really what attracted me to it. So I ended up graduating with my secondary education degree. And after a year, that was right in the midst of the recession, 2009. So I've been promised all these teaching jobs, like you're going to walk into a teaching job. And there was absolutely nothing. So I ended up subbing for a year and I was very fortunate that the school that I ended up um, graduating from, I, I moved to Union City High School, my senior year of high school, and they knew me and they had an opening and just got really lucky that I was able to, to get that job in 2010 out there. Um, since then, uh, I ended up studying history further at Slippery Rock, uh, got another um, history master, um, education master's at Edinburgh, and then I ended up starting Rust and Dirt a couple years ago, which led to Nick Warren reaching out to me from the Erie Reader, and that's that's what I've been doing since, teaching, writing, and and doing the, the Rust and Dirt thing. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about Rust and Dirt. I was just going to ask that. So do you want to know the backstory, like why I created it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So this would have been 2017, I think. So I'm like, you know, finishing up my sixth year of teaching at Union City. And the they, they ended up doing some curriculum changes. Um, 
they were gonna cut the, the vast majority of the social studies program out of the high school. Um, and it's a pretty crazy story. They were, gonna, they were gonna cut one of the popular teachers and then my position was gonna be cut too, but I had a backup math certification that I just kind of got on a whim that protected me and at least was gonna get me a job. So if you Google Union City high school protests, you can find all the coverage of that because the students did walkouts and sit-ins and um, wow. it, was, it was pretty wow. pretty incredible, inspiring stuff, but they went through with the cuts anyway. Um, they did keep the one teacher, but my position was cut. So there was no union, or there was no uh, high school history at all anymore in, in the ninth through 12th grade there. So I ended up teaching um, math for two years in middle school. And as you can imagine, I, I, I'm like an English history guy. So I was pretty depressed about it. And it was that summer and I was thinking how, like I got to tap into this part of my brain. Like I, I like math is too concrete for me. If I don't exercise that part of my brain, I'm going to go crazy. So I just kind of started rusting dirt on a whim because public history is, I just finished up my uh, history masters and I, we spent a lot of time looking at historiography and public history. And I was really interested in just number one, doing something just to keep me sane. Um, and number two, doing something that would take history that can be pretty inaccessible to a lot of people. Um, you know, like you read a lot of scholarly journals or even history books and they're dense. They're, they're hard to get through if you don't have, you know, historical background. So I wanted to do something that would be like quick and little snippets of history, you know, just one or two little snippets every day. Um, and it would be, you know, public facing. So it'd be meant to be communicated to just regular everyday people that may not have historical training. And all I did was I went to the Erie PA hashtag and I just started following everybody through the rest of it. I never had my name attached to it. I didn't tell my friends. The only person I knew was my wife. Oh, and wow. It started to kind of take off and people noticed it. And um, so I, I still do it. It's a fun hobby. Wow. Well, that's interesting how you said how Rust and Dirt started because in, in the impact what you wanted to make with that, but that same like vision that you had was how I saw your name in the article for, uh, you know, the foundation of Erie and Oliver Hazard Perry, which brings us to this conversation because when I was reading the articles that you were writing, you know, the one article that stood out to me was that exact, the story that we're going to get ready to get into, but when I was reading that article, I was like, who the hell wrote this? Cause this is a good article. Like I didn't even like, the name was like, the article is what I was looking for, right? And so I happened to see your name and I'm like, is this person black or white? That's the one thing I started thinking. I'm like, is this person black? Like, who is this person? Like, you know? And so when I researched, I'm like, oh, this is a white man. Like I was kind of like taken back. I was like the way how the story was put where it was like real raw in how the, like our history was and bits and pieces that were left out I was like, oh my gosh. So I was like, I definitely have to know who this person is. So now we're here. So I'm, I'm really excited because that's exactly how I got connected with your work in the area. Uh, I mean, I appreciate you saying that because you know, like it's, let's be real. Like the vast majority of historians that get published or right. get the chance to be read look like me. Yeah. And it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm very aware of. And I've been, I've been, blessed with this platform mm -hmm. and it, yeah I mean I definitely take that that responsibility serious yeah um, 
it's yeah. like so thank you for saying that. Yeah, and I appreciate the using, you know, like you said, your privilege to speak truth to what's actually happening. That that was what impacted me. It was like, you know, like, whoa, like this person is really like wants to let people know, like, this is the truth of it. Like, this is the truth of the person that says they found it, uh, you know, eerie. And oh, I'm excited. So can mm -hmm. we jump in? Yes, well, jump in. <laughs> you want to kick it off since this was like your brainchild for a topic? Yeah, yeah. Let me, let, I need to shut the door because I don't want to need no background right now. Because listen, because we about to jump into it. Okay. So, <laughs> so, you know, this story is something that is interesting because Oliver has a Perry. Um, does anybody, I, I, I really don't want to start with who the person was. I think, Jonathan, you do a great. Uh, a great segue to that. Can you start off with who Oliver has a period is? And then I want to give my experience of like childhood, like listening, hearing this name and it not resonating with me. So I, I would like you to start off though with that, if you could. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say growing up, I mean, literally the only name I knew from Erie history was Oliver Hazard Perry. That was it. And, you know, I guess when they built the Dobbins Landing, then I kind of was aware of, you know, Daniel Dobbins, although I didn't really know a whole lot about him until I studied on my own um but he was he uh, he was from Rhode Island he came from you know like an elite sailing family um you know definitely definitely Silver Spoon and he ends up um you know he, he makes a name for himself sailing down in the Caribbean um you know busting up piracy and um eventually actually you know stopping the when the transatlantic slave trade was stopped you know, he was also commissioned to patrol the seas for that as well. But he ends up, Daniel Dobbins, of course, very famously goes down to D.C. And, you know, he's lobbying the, the Secretary of State saying that Erie's this perfect place, that we've got this natural port and harbor and all that. Um, and then that's when they end up commissioning Oliver Hazard Perry, who at the time, I believe, was just a captain, mm -hmm. to, mm -hmm. to swoop in and... You know, I always picture like the HBO miniseries of like this, these nitty gritty, dirty, stinky Erieites. I think it was only like 500 people at the time. And he comes in as this sort of like rich, dashing sailor, um, very arrogant, you know, kind of full of himself. Mm -hmm. uh, and he would not be the hero of my HBO miniseries, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, he's complicated. I, I don't think he's all bad. But I guess that's everybody in history is there. There's lots of gray areas there. What stood out to me about the story was in the um, talking about what stood out to me was the, the amount of the lack of knowledge that we knew about the black sailors that helped us win, mm -hmm. um, you know, the war. It's like. You know, I know that there's been the there's been, you know, and we have in our in our library, like literally there's the ship and all that. And I've done the whole like viewing of the monuments and all that. And it's just, it didn't resonate to me until the story of Oliver Hazard Perry did not resonate until I walked into a, a, a business and saw him being like that, his picture being greeted to me at, um, where was I at? Uh, Oliver's. Mm -hmm. That was what it, Oliver's. Um, mm -hmm. And I had like, obviously I knew about Oliver, like I, Oliver has a Perry, like obviously I knew a little bit about the story, but knowing that people in the city, like 
knowing that this is still like our person up there that in the story is not really being told and it's all entire the truth, like as if he's just this hero and this savior, that's what really stuck out to me. So knowing that people are still like that, that to me is like, I don't know. I felt like it was a slap in the face because I'm like, oh, there's this new art, there's this new business, but literally like, it's just right there in my face. Like that's, I was like, okay, we need to, we need to talk about this story because this is something that again, you know, hearing that he had black sailors and black soldiers and did not want them initially. But then when they won, he was like, oh yes, you know, we're so excited. We're geeked up, you know, that this person won the war, that, that we won the war, but it's like, you didn't even want your, you didn't even want those black sailors because you felt that they had no worth to you. Right. He said, you know? he said something like, well, at least we have something in the shape of a man. And I thought like how dehumanizing <laughs> and like just degrading to say like, what, basically he was like offended he's like why would you send me all these black sailors but at least they're in the shape of a man like that to me it just I can't it's hard to look at you know that person and be like have pride in a city that is, is still supposed to rise above racism but we're mm -hmm. still like putting this person on like a pedestal mm -hmm. a person who was racist honestly well, like to Jonathan's point too like he was born into this privileged life, like le like barring his white privilege, his male, but but just like the wealth and and power and prestige that he was just born into too. Like how heroic is that? I don't like, great, good job. You didn't like ruin the like power and stuff that you already had, but like you didn't do anything. I don't know. I just, there's so many more like powerful people that also like, didn't have all this like shitty side to them as well that I feel like we could do so much better at raising those voices up but we just like cling to this one person and then get like defend them I've seen so many defenses of Oliver Hazard like someone wrote an article or an um like an op-ed thing into the paper defending after someone had called uh Oliver Hazard Perry racist and he was like oh he's not racist that's miss you're misunderstanding blah 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 and I'm like okay older white man defending a dead older white man like like, I don't know. I don't know why we have to cling so desperately, like white knuckling these old white men. And we can't just say like, yeah, you know what? <laughs> they weren't perfect. They're, they're not that great. And there's a lot of other examples that we can use for like great leadership. Yeah. I mean, whatever his reasoning was for saying it, I mean, it was clearly racism involved. Right. Um, whether if it was his idea that they weren't going to be capable sailors, well, I mean, that doesn't even, that doesn't even reflect the reality because actually the reason why there were so many talented black sailors was because that was where their labor was so like go back to the 1800s there's lots of Irish immigrants coming in at this point there's lots of different European immigrants coming in they started to take all the uh the low-skilled land jobs like on land that used to be reserved for free black people well so they get pushed out of these jobs so where do they go maritime jobs and it was also like for you know for particularly a black man at the time hey you go out you go out to sea that's like months of guaranteed work because you're going to go out there for a while mm -hmm. and you know they're not going to fire you because you're out there with them um so i've seen numbers as high as 25 percent of perry's fleet may have been black 
Um, but it's impossible to know because we don't have we don't have pr proper records of it. Um, I think I've seen estimates anywhere between ten and twenty five percent, including Perry's like right hand man, um, Cyrus. Oh, I'm I'm blanking on his name, Cyrus. Uh, Cyrus Tiffany. Mm. He was a servant of Perry's who we don't know much about his background, but was probably enslaved at one point and somehow ended up sailing with Perry for all these years. He's the one, if you find the, if you look up murals of Oliver Hazard Perry crossing the river and you see the black man in front of him holding the, um, holding the flag, that's Cyrus Tiffany. And he was like 75 years old or something during the battle. And he stayed by Perry's side literally like the whole time, including when they crossed the ship between the Lawrence and the, and that's not a name I knew. I bet I was pushing 30 before I knew any of this stuff. And that's exactly it. That's something that has not been taught in our, um, in our history, uh, especially as a student, a public school student that went here in Erie. Like that's something that we, again, don't, uh, I'm sure our kids don't even know. Mm -hmm. Marty, were you going to say something? Yeah, I want to take a few steps back. Um, me not being from here, I see don't, what is it? Don't give up the ship. And I see this and that. And I have some semblance of the story, but I really don't know the story. So I want to get back to the basics. Like who is Oliver, Oliver Hazard Perry and why is he famous for those who are like myself who don't really fully know the story? Do you, do you want to take it? Well, I was just going to say, like, honestly, my only understanding of the story is that, like, shit hit the fan and things were going bad. And then he was like, okay, guys, don't give up. And then they, like, somehow, like, got out of there, like, by the skin of their teeth and, and were okay. But Jonathan will probably do a better job telling the story. All right. So, so basically, we were, we were fighting the British. Let's just go back to the basics first. You know, we're really, really new nation at this point. Like, it's not guaranteed that the United States is going to survive and that the Union is going to. I mean, spoiler alert, we end up in a civil war, you know, a few decades after this. Um, so, you know, things are pretty shaky. The British, um, they've, they've teamed up with different Native American nations. And, you know, they're trying to destabilize the United States. And the British had this extremely powerful Navy that we didn't at all. I mean, we barely had a standing army at this point. So they end up being over um, towards like Put-In Bay, Sandusky, Ohio area. And when the fleet led by Perry exits Presque Isle Bay, they end up, you know, sailing over towards the Put-In Bay, Sandusky area. And that ends up being the, the climatic battle. And there's a ton of like different details and stuff. Um, military history isn't my forte necessarily. If you if you want to read about the battle, it, it, is, it is cool in terms of like just how wild it was. Um, but the the story of the flag is he was on the Lawrence, not the Niagara. The Niagara was back out of range for there's a lot of theories as to why. But the Niagara was basically okay. The Lawrence was borderline sinking. Like there was so much, like some accounts say there's so much blood that people were slipping on the blood on the on the ship. And Perry realizes he has to get to the Niagara in order to take command back and you know be able to command the rest of the ships and defeat the British. So the image is that I, I think he took four people with him in one of the boats. 
including Cyrus Tiffany, and they had that flag. The flag was actually belonged to Lawrence, who was another guy who, who died in a previous naval battle. They get to the Niagara, they raise the flag, and they end up defeating the British. So that's mm -hmm. the, the bare bones basics of it. So the flag, I mean, the flag's cool. Like I even have like a, I've got a mask that mm. says don't give a Yeah. Just a little yeah. symbol. Mm -hmm. You know, Oliver has a transplant. To be honest with you, like he was, it's because it, when you read the story, he's not even from, he's not even from Erie, PA. He's from actually South Kingston, Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. So it's like a whole, like, it's funny how our very beginning of how Erie was even like, you know, is like, it's interesting. It's definitely a Erie transplant. Mm. Like, does that make sense? Uh -huh. well, and then he peaces out right after. Right. Huh? Like he, he wins a battle and he's like, peace out, Erie. Right. And then he leaves. Right. Like, it's like, Right. So it, it almost is a kind of terrible, beautiful irony then that that new restaurant at the um, right. Bayfront that's called Oliver's. Yes. Is like in a space that's not meant for native Erieites because it's clearly like this like swanky hotel space that's like meant for outsiders. Right. And like Oliver Hazard yes. Perry is an outsider, and like you glorify Oliver Hazard Perry in this place, and like this pseudo trying to like localize, like celebrate local heroes, but like yeah, he's not he's not a local person. No. And so like me he peed out all this time. I thought like he either was from here or no. they telling me we're celebrating this guy that wasn't even. No. How how long was he even based here to be like this champion of Erie? I'm very confused. That's, that's why I'm already, I'm team Daniel Dobbins because Daniel Dobbins, exactly. in the beginning, he stayed after, he, he's buried in Erie Cemetery. Notice Dobbins landing is simple. You just pay a couple bucks, you get to go up. Nothing fancy. You just enjoy the views. It's wonderful. The man of the people. Plus, <laughs> he was extremely active in the Underground Railroad. He was an abolitionist. Ooh. Daniel Dobbins is, is Erie. I did not like, know that. Daniel yeah. Dobbins, abolitionist, underground railroad. Okay. I know he's your hero, but my hero is definitely, my heroes are definitely the people that were here on this earth before we even decided to come in. I decided to come in. So for me, it's the definitely the indigenous people that you're, because Erie's, the Erie Nation, that's not even, I don't even think that's the original name of the people that were here before us. Honestly, right, they were, were they? Right, were they? That was a name given to them. Exactly. So that's the thing. Like for me, it's like the honoring of our land and first and foremost has to go to the people who are here, still mm -hmm. here probably too. Right. And, you know, their ancestors, like that's first and foremost. And then thank you to Dobbins and all that. Thank you for, you know, helping in the struggle. Uh, you know, but I, I think we have to, that's why I think this story resonates deep with me too, because it's like, it's so much more complex than like we can even like imagine. Right. And uh, it, it's, it's, it's very interesting. This story is really interesting because it's like the segue into like how we should like figure out how to find pride in our town without it and how to, how to bring back that sense of like, um, I would say a uh, community that is here, but mm -hmm. We've been we've erased so many different communities before they before even mm -hmm. these people right. who are well, he, uh, heroes. And like you, to your point, Devon, about like the the first inhabitants of this area, like they are very intentionally not here right. because of campaigns to erase them 
which we now call genocide, which is another thing that like a local Erie hero is guilty of, which right. is Anthony Wayne, mad Anthony Wayne, who everyone like loves the, the story of, which he was born in Pennsylvania, but not here in Erie, but he died here in Erie. So like, I guess that's why we claim him. But, um, but he was like a genocidal maniac that went and devastated countless indigenous communities and then was praised for it and still has a monument today in mm-hmm. Perry, Squ- Perry Square, again, ironic, but in Perry Square that like commemorates him vanquishing the indigenous people. Mm-hmm. So like, I don't know what it, it is. No, I know exactly what it is like white supremacy but Mm -hmm. um like it's just ridiculous that we cling to these like horrific like mass murderers as like idols or heroes but like Anthony Wayne was had a lot of issues I'm sure was struggling with a lot of problems but like he was a huge piece of the genocide that was committed against indigenous people in the United States and then a school had to be, I think that was the school, Wayne, was it Wayne's? There was a, a, a public school that was named after. Mm-hmm. Can we take a second and like yeah. point out where their markers are around town? So like, who is it at the library? Who's that statue? Perry. 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 And then who are who are the faces on the street for the bicentennial? Um, is that oh, Perry as well? No. I'd have to see it. Yeah, I, I need to I see, don't I don't know. I need to see the Cause there's, I can't, there the girl, there's so many. I mean, if you, you didn't think about Wayne being the name, I'm just thinking about all the places where these people are honored, where it doesn't even like, we don't even think about it, you mm-hmm. know? Right. Like Perry square or like, mm-hmm. yeah. No. I'd be curious how many people even know the name of, you, you know, Queen Yaga Nawania or I think Gagosasa was her, her, um, I don't know who that is. I don't know who that is either. She was the she was the queen of the whatever you want to call them the, the Erie Nation. Mm. Um, I, I mean, they, there's a lot of different names that they go by, but we'll just stick with the Eries just for mm-hmm. simplicity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she was the queen in like the 1650s, pre-colonial contact, because colonists, other than some like, I think some Jesuits maybe had been here, mm-hmm. um, but other than that, there hadn't really been much contact over this part, so. Oh, I mean, I she she was remarkable. If you if you Google her story, she was like a real peacekeeper between the Eries and the Seneca and the Iroquois, and um, you know the the confederacies that began to form. Um, and just to add to it, the the native or the First Nation confederacies, they basically began to form these confederacies because they realized that they were stronger together. And now that you know the Americans or whatever you want to call them at the time, the colonists were approaching. And colonizing it made more sense for them to form these confederacies so they end up basically in a war amongst themselves um, for a variety of reasons and the queen she did it like an excellent job of peacekeeping between them and then eventually two people got murdered from one of the tribes and it turned into all-out war and that's why by the time the americans got to what is erie 1795 um, there was no what we would call the Erie's nation left. <clears throat> They'd either fled as refugees mm-hmm. or they'd been assimilated into uh, the Seneca, the Iroquois, and the, the other tribes. So mm-hmm. um, I think it was Dr. Jolie when he and I, who you had on here previously, when he and I had a chat, he basically said, it's not that they're, they weren't wiped out. That's a myth. Mm-hmm. They basically were absorbed. Mm-hmm. The ones that weren't killed were absorbed into other 
nations, mm. basically. So, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, say that name to anybody, and 99% of people in Erie will have no idea. Yeah. Who she is. Say her name again Queen Yagawanya. Queen Yagawanya. Um, you'll also see it as, and I may be pronouncing it incorrectly. I read a lot, and I don't always, I've never, I've, I don't actually think I've ever heard her name pronounced out loud. Sure. Um, and Gagosasa was what she went by. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. You in, yeah, anybody that's listening, type in Queen of Erie's Nation or Erie's Indians, and you'll be mm -hmm. able to you'll be able to track her story down. Awesome. Yeah. Wouldn't that be cool if we had a like Gagosasa Elementary School instead of like a Woodrow Wilson <laughs> school or so, you know, like I'm always about honoring and, and I, we are not honoring this land as the way that we really should. And if we're going to tell the story of Oliver Hazard Perry or Wayne or any of those other things, then we need to also have statues and stuff of people that, especially those soldiers, like that's one thing that big really like, I keep really thinking about the soldiers that, you know, and that story, that's one story that did re resonate with me because as a kid, I probably heard Oliver Hazard Perry's story multiple times, probably, but it didn't really impact me. And I didn't really feel, um, like a, the story was a part of me until I like knew that there was representation that was left out of a story that I did not know. Especially like in finding out like in what I'm 33 now, finding out like in my 20s, come on. Like that was, that's wild. Like, you know, and I, you know, it could be a mixture of things, but I think the stories are not told enough um, in, in, in the eerie, I mean, they're in an eerie period. Like, the, but we need to have statues. We need to have like, these people represented in a way where our kids can see that and they feel like, oh, there's pride. Because as a kid, I didn't feel the pride. There was, okay, what does Oliver has a parent you got to do with my life? You know, that's what I was thinking mm -hmm. probably as a child. Now I'm older, I'm like, oh, but that story is so much more deeper. And there were people that were like me, you know? And I just, I don't know. I, I, and maybe that I'm just, that's the inner child in me coming out of like, that's how I felt, you know, reading the story and really connecting with it now in a different way than I didn't connect as a younger kid. Yeah, well, you let's be real. You wouldn't have had anybody <clears throat> that was popular in Erie's history to look up to. Like, right. why didn't, why weren't we teaching about Jesse Pope, the, the you know, the president of the NAACP in the 1920s Yeah. during a time, as a woman, a Black woman, mm -hmm. in a time when the KKK was still active here. Yeah. And he found the Pope Hotel that has, you know, right. Duke Ellington and, and potentially Aretha Franklin and, you know, some of these people that we don't even know who all went through there, but um, like, why didn't you know these stories? Girl? I mean, we know why, but these are the stories that kids need these idols Absolutely. to look up to, these heroes to look up Absolutely. to. Mm -hmm. Like um, we've had many people come through the city of Erie, you know, I mean, Erie had, uh, we actually, the, you know, the Pope Hotel was in the Green Book. Yeah. You know what? Yeah, yeah, it was in the green. That and another business in uh in in the city of Erie was in um was it uh that was black owned was, it, was in. I can't yeah, it was remember. a barbecue or something. I think. Uh yes, it was. They all oh, barbecue. Yeah, it was a food. It was a food place in a hotel. You know because you know when when you know the stars and like Duke Ellington, Ray Charles, or people would come in the whole it, they would that would be the safe place for them. You know, obviously, do because of racism, they would be the safest place. And so the Pope Hotel was. The, the safe haven, the stomping ground were all, you know, Aretha Franklin, Duke Ellington, Ray Charles. And like he said, many, many more probably came. Probably, and even in people in Erie that are um, actually, um, I can't have uh, her name, uh, Brown. She is also, do you guys know who I'm talking about? 
uh, Mary yeah, Brown. Mary Alice. Yeah, Mary, yes. Um, she uh, was actually, I think, believe performed at that place too. So we've had also historical people in Erie perform at this place that is then the building has been demolished and now is a parking lot. Let's be honest with that. And then there's still no muse, no monument, no museum, no nothing, you know, of this, of this beautiful place that had amazing people come through. Why was it demolished? I don't know. You first off, we know why. That's due to racism. They're not going to preserve black spaces. <laughs> that's the problem. That's the problem in our city. You touched on the Green Book really briefly. Can you tell folks what that was? And I think it will also touch on like if there was a need for a Green Book here in Erie. Well, obviously we're still struggling with racism. Absolutely. Well, this is a yeah. This is the Green Book. Okay. So wow. So I I okay. I'm just gonna put the best way that I know. Um, the Green Book was a, a booklet and a directory of um, safe spaces, black spaces, um, um, of businesses, uh, restaurant, home, whatever. It was shelter for people who were needing a safe place. So, you know, uh, there's actually a, uh, a movie about it. I don't know if anybody is, uh, Mahershala is actually in the movie, which is, I love, he's one of my faves uh, as an actor, but Yes, he. Um, but in the, the green book was and uh, was a space was a space for that. So you know, people in black families would have these books, and these would be safe spaces that they can go to when they're traveling. Um, and you know, it's interesting because that's some of the reason why Black Wall Street is around because of that having like black owned businesses and that being like the forefront for us. But that is literally like that uh, being in Erie. We have that's a piece of history of Erie that a lot of our young kids, a lot of people not even just young kids, a lot of people don't even know, like, um, which is really, really, it's, it's crazy. It's crazy that we had that, you know, that we had that we're a part of that history um, to know that we're in, you know, something that was like super like safe for us. Um, and it was due to a lot of it was due to racism. Uh, so, you know, it would, it was a safe place for people like th that director was let, led people to really, really like good places and, you know, safe spaces for, for black people. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really good. It's a, it's, it was a good thing. And then I don't know what happened with it though. Um, at some point integration or they reverse Brown yeah. versus the board of education and segregation became legally, yeah. you know, illegal, but yeah, it existed in a time when black people, when traveling, couldn't go to the gas station to use the bathroom or it would be dangerous to stop at a certain place mm -hmm. to eat because you know racism so it's yeah. it's amazing to hear about a specific place mm -hmm. in Erie where yeah. people found safe haven right and so those three spaces actually I was just like looking up. so these three spaces were the Kentucky Seek Barbecue and that was on 1438 Parade Street and that is actually I believe now it's the Erie uh, Met Metropolitan Transit Authority Maintenance Facility is now appears on that site mm -hmm. um, and then there's the Pope Hotel which is the 13th and 8th 1318 French Street, and that was um, the hotel's early owner was Ernie Wright. I don't know who Ernie Wright is, but apparently they were a Cleveland Buckeyes baseball team owner. That was Jesse Pope's son. So yeah. as she got older, she let him take it over. Okay. And then eventually, when she died, he took he took it over. Um, and yeah, he owned a, prof a professional baseball yeah. team. Um, I mean, he's another story that we could go exactly. into. Exactly. See, the, the things that we need to know. So then there's uh, Wilson Sinclair service station at 17th and French streets. So those are some pretty interesting. Those are those spaces, even now Parade Street, French Street, I'm looking at in French Street, like that's 
wow, that's, this is really wild. I have met, um, I was able to chat with Jesse Pope's great granddaughter who lives in Atlanta now. And she wants to make a documentary on the Pope Hotel. Really? So I, I, I put her in touch with a couple, um, you know, Johnny Johnson and yeah. some others who really know Erie's Black history, like, yeah. you know, the back of her hand. And, I, I, and I'm hoping something comes of it. Yes, that would be great. That would be great because I think that in itself, that story, when I, and again, I found that story out and I am really not ashamed to say that because I could have, I mean, I'm not ashamed to say that, that I found this story out actually about when, how was I, when I ran for city? So I was about 29, 28 or 29 when I actually heard about the Pope Hotel. And I'm, that's on, that's a while, you know, uh, and that can be a mixture of things that could be, you know, just it not really being talked about in my family, me, maybe not asking questions, but like, that's just in general, that's just it not being taught in our schools. Like, I'm sorry, period. Like, um, but it, it's interesting how I like did that. Hearing these stories gave me so much more pride. And I was like, okay, so then we got work to do up in Erie. We got work, okay, because these people are going to get recognized and these buildings and spaces are going to get recognized. And if it's my last thing that I do, now today just got recognized. So we really need to do work and the city needs to do work on making, like maybe some monuments for these places or I don't know. I think, but just hearing that this space was like taken and destructed and like you, when you go over there, that's by the Wendy's area, isn't that? That's by Wendy's. It's like right behind the Democratic yeah. headquarters, like where like the yep. level parking, mm -hmm. like uh, yeah. apartments, parking lots are. I was just looking at it. I was like, where is this exactly? Yeah. No. I feel like I've gone on a roller coaster ride of emotions because <laughs> I had not heard of the Pope Hotel. Yeah. And then to find out that it was torn down. Yeah. And no, like, so... For people that don't know, my dad was a history professor, deeply involved in a lot of like historical stuff going on and, um, but has subsequently died and become history himself. So that's fine. But um, just knowing that there's like so many different historical organizations in the community here that fight for things to be restored or, or rehabbed. I mean, like you look at the construction happening at Warner Theater right now where they're redoing again because i'm pretty sure that they've like redone it a few times before, like but they're like updating it again mm -hmm. like we have the ability to save and restore and and keep a lot of these important historical markers and it's just so fascinating that like to claim it's anything other than white privilege white supremacy or racism that's mm -hmm. that's demolishing such an important landmark for for black history and for all our like because i'm so sick of just like it being separated as if black history especially in the midst of black history month like black history month should be all the time mm -hmm. um yeah because it, it is just as much part of like everyone's history because it's so important to to who we are as a community and as a country but um to think that that was demolished and that we've never heard about it is bizarre to me yeah, but makes me angry. Glad we have. Yeah, well, I mean, it takes money. It takes money, and the and the people that have the money. Look, I mean, we have some people that have a lot of money that have a love of local history, and they restore things. And but there's there's a lot of places that could be or could have been restored that have been destroyed. And there's places like you know New Jerusalem, yeah. which was you know the, the the black neighborhood right on the bayfront that. Um, I think it was William Hamrod, one of the early abolitionists, bought 
and basically made it for the Black Erie residents to have this like safe space, beautiful views of the over the bluffs and um, how much has been tore down there? How many of the Lawrence family, Ada Lawrence families, um, homes have been tore down? The mm -hmm. Hamilton yep. Waters and just gonna and say though, Earth. yes, yes. Um, and and to bring up your your dad, Lydia, mm -hmm. uh, I hope you don't mind me saying, but he's he's the reason I do what I do. Mm. Um, I know I've shared with you that he was a professor of mine, but it wasn't just like once. I took your dad like a dozen times between um undergrad and grad school and he said something I'll, I'll never ever forget it's one of the most simple ideas and so profound that it really kind of changed my temperament because at 21 and 22 I, I mean I was a firebrand I was angry at the world and mm -hmm. I was learning like I got assigned Howard Zinn by your dad and I was so angry that I'd never known any of this stuff growing up in like Cambridge Springs I was like why did I why did anybody tell me this stuff um and your dad, I was in some office hours with him once, which I didn't go too often because I was a pretty introverted. I was, you know, I, I was there to absorb information, not usually participate so much. But I went to an office hours once and he knew I was fired up about, I don't even know what. And he told me, you'll never change anybody's mind by calling them stupid. Mm. And that really, that really spoke to me because... You know, if you don't know, you don't know. Right. The things I thought at like 15, 16, 17 years old, I'm not proud of a lot of things I used to believe or used to think or my ignorance of certain parts of our history. But part of it was I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't have access mm -hmm. to that information or I didn't know how to access that information. Um, so, you know, with this platform that you have here, you all do a really good job of like filling in these gaps of our local culture and history and like all these like these little gaps that have been left out you're kind of like patchworking it all in to help give people um you know that information that they otherwise wouldn't have because it's not available to them um so yeah like i said uh, my my time at uh, edinburgh with your father was extremely important to me and um i definitely i definitely think about him often wow Thank you. That, that was, thank you for sharing that. That was awesome. That's powerful. And maybe That's I should powerful. reframe some of my thoughts because I was a little angry just now talking yeah. about historical organizations and knowing oh, I get that, like, so yes, maybe people are involved now that aren't as aware of what happened. Cause I don't know when it was demolished, but like now what do we do? Right? Like that's at the end of the day, that's all we can control. Yeah, that's right. So I wasn't involved when things were demolished. So I, I couldn't have advocated on behalf of the Pope mm -hmm. Hotel because I had no idea until like this conversation. So now what do we do? What like what do we do? Right. Or people listen like so. So Oliver Hazard Perry, problematic guy, Matt Anthony Wayne. Problem, well, also, let's not call him mad because also I'm so sick of like pathologizing people that are struggling with mental illness or addiction yeah. or something like like people that are struggling with addiction or mental illness are also not genocidal. So right, genocidal right. Anthony Wayne, who may have been struggling with other things, but that did not make him genocidal, but he was definitely, anyway, whatever. But so now that we know that these people are problematic, what do we do? 
And now that we have like a list of names, right? I feel like Jonathan has like given us a treasure box of all these names of like, oh, you know, you don't right. like these people here. Here is a plethora of people to choose from that are like so much more inspiring, so much more inclusive and exciting to hear about that, that speak to all of us mm -hmm. that can still be inspiring to all of us, but in, in such a more wholesome, like holistic way. Yeah. What do we do now? I just really want the stories to be told and it's all it's truth and stop. Things need to be, st I think what, what I look at in general in our life, like everything is like, if it does, everything needs to be put in this like fancy little box, right? For it to be like presented to us in like a beautiful way. But like history is bloody. History is like, is gory. Like it's like literally it's crazy because we just keep trying to like sugarcoat things in our city. And it's like, stop sugarcoating. Like this happened Oliver did this, but also here's some, like, there's some other people that did this. Like, I don't, I think that there's nothing wrong with telling the story and telling his story, I guess, but the stories, other stories that are not told, mm -hmm. that's my problem. Like, go ahead, tell the story of Oliver Hazard, but let's also be true about the story. And let's be honest about the things that mm -hmm. literally transpire. Don't like make it where you're taking out bits and pieces because it sounds good. Right. That's our freaking problem here is everybody wants to is, is like there's this sugar coating, you know what I'm saying? Like, we don't have time for that. And like you said, like, okay, now how can we honor these places? It's just being honest, like honoring them, like people who are trying to, who are doing historical work and there, there's actually some good work that's gonna be happening. I really do see that. Um, there's good work happening behind, uh, behind, I don't even like saying behind closed doors, but there is good work happening. People are really trying to trying to do good and they're trying to bring and shed light to these things that are happening that have happened in our city. So. I think that's just like what we're doing is we're just we don't we're doing it is bringing it to the forefront bringing it a platform for it and mm -hmm. that's all we really can do and hope people listen to it and have their own perspectives and see what and it brings pride like I don't know I feel like when I hear the story of West Bayfront being predominantly a community of free blacks and they started homes and they started businesses and knowing that like that story needs to be told and in whatever organization which I'm definitely now going to be adding that to our stuff is just telling the stories that's all we gonna, have to i was going to say when you tell the full story though then you right. realize some of these heroes aren't the best heroes they're right they're, when you come in you gave us some great heroes jonathan but even in my own head i know there are more heroes in erie that we haven't even touched on right. so when you actually dig and expand on the stories you realize that the people we champion and put murals of and mm -hmm. name schools after I guess when you when you celebrate militarism and colonization they are heroes but when you expand like what is truly mm -hmm. something to be proud of those aren't probably the people that we should no. be celebrating slash mm -hmm. they should not be our highest celebrate people you know right. I think that's where we need to go I think we need to reflect on things and adjust that doesn't mean like we have to tear down every statue but yeah. maybe it means resurrecting new statues maybe it means adding more curriculum to our textbooks but things need to adjust we can't mm -hmm. keep doing things the way we've been yeah. doing Devana did a really nice job of even calling me on it because when I was like talking about um, Daniel Dobbins right and then we think about it from, from the perspective of the the people that were here in 1795 when the surveyors came in they weren't viewing Daniel Dobbins as any hero um, they didn't care that he was an abolitionist. All they saw was that he was one of the colonizers coming in and, you know, forcing them off the, yeah. the beautiful Presque Isle and, and the surrounding area. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it, it is all a matter of perspective. And it, a lot of it's relative to, you know, what your, 
you know, what your own perspective is and also, you know, what exactly part of the story that you're looking at. Mm -hmm. um, and everybody's complex, you know. Yes. Atrocities happen everywhere in all societies and all sides. And, you know, you have to be able to be honest about all that sort of stuff if you're really going to get to the root of any story, really. Mm -hmm. Right. And I, I think, think that's we where should... we... Sorry, go ahead, Marty. I was going to say real briefly, I think we should celebrate the people who resisted. You know, we spent the last four years saying we're resisting this, we're resisting that, but we come from a history of people who resisted, but we don't celebrate those resistors. Let's not dig them back up, but let's like reanimate them and tell their stories. You know, these yeah. are the people we should celebrate, not necessarily the people who literally destroyed them are or you, made their lives miserable. Is anybody familiar with Bo Bladen? Mm -mm. Is anybody heard that? No. So he was, he actually came in 1795 too with that whole group that came to Survey Erie. And he had purchased going off the top of my head here, so I might make a few mistakes, but he had purchased his freedom in Maryland, I believe. And I think he purchased the freedom of his family too. And they all came up here. And there's um, off Cherry Street Extension, Extension, it's uh, Bladen Road. Uh -huh. It's uh, named after where his farmstead was. And he, he was one of the very first, you know, uh, Americans, non-Indigenous people in this area he has a little farmstead and his family owned it for like a hundred some years um, before it, actually, I don't even know what happened to him. I'm assuming at some point it got demolished. Um, it went out of the family at some point. Um, but talk about resistance, like he resisted, he resisted his enslavement. And I, I, I don't even know if we know the whole story of how he was able to um, get out of it, but came here and started anew out in the wilderness and, you know, kind of started was wow. able to have family and be free here and um, I like how he also chose Mill Creek was, he was actually out of like the downtown part where most people were probably because he just wanted everybody to leave him alone like <laughs> I, I just exist here with my family mm. um, that's a beautiful yeah that's super cool yeah I feel like there's so much we could do whether we're talking about monuments or or just even the language around current monuments right like and going back to the whole like telling a more complex story I think it's so frustrating to see war memorials for like Vietnam or Korea or World War One or two that honor the the lives lost which I'm not saying that that frustrates me that like when people die, that's a ho horrific, sad thing that, that especially when it, it happens on such a large scale, that's upsetting. And, and we should, you know, give people a space to, to honor those people that they lost. But then in those same spaces, like I'm just thinking at Perry Square, where then we talk about vanquishing indigenous, like in, vanquishing Indians, when like those people are like, it's the same thing, right? Like those people were lives lost in great quantities that is a sad, horrible thing. And can you imagine if in the middle of Perry Square, we had a monument that celebrated the death of our veterans or our service members? Like that, that would be so incendiary, so like ridiculous to even suggest. And yet we have that right now in Perry Square. We have that where we celebrate 
the lost lives of people that lived here and were defending their their home um in I, I mean I think it was a little further into like Ohio in the Ohio area where like Anthony Wayne vanquished quote air quotes the the Native Americans but you know just in our language and how we just it's so important to just be so thoughtful with the way we talk about it or or thinking about you know creating I don't even know like booklets for schools right like we have community schools and we have um local historical societies like why can't we put together a little booklet that can go out to every school that has a more complex diverse history of of like local eerie folks that celebrates cyrus tiffany just like we celebrate oliver hazard perry you know i mean i don't know i feel like there's so much potential here we could do so much more even outside of school though and this being me as a transplant or viewing the city as an of the eyes of like my parents who come here for a little bit mm -hmm. those monuments may only history they get of history so we need to do better about highlighting this all the other history that has happened here mm -hmm. yeah that's such a good point the diverse history we have we started off we're pretty diverse we have a very diverse history we're not like we uh like jonathan said there's our we're none of us are are one-dimensional we're very complex people so i think that like we can't even we are not even showing sharing our history in the way that it should be like it's very complex history but it's like if we know all the parts of it i think that people it would be it would bring a lot more healing to our city and then also it would show it like i feel like our city is taking so many different directions because of like the lack of like the the collective of like how our history started where we need to move forward there's like so many different directions people are taking Mm -hmm. I don't know if y'all see, like, see it that way, but I do see it that way a little bit. It ties into modern happenings, too. Like, yeah. as we talk about redevelopment and we talk about potential of brown and black communities, you know, fading away from the city. Think about what happened to, yeah. was it called, New Jerusalem. Think about how you literally demolished black history and think about, like, how that parallels to what we're doing now. When you don't know that history or can't like compare of course you're going to make not even make the same mistakes because there is more awareness you mm -hmm. just don't uh, you have to be more conscious of it you have to be right. conscious of the space you're feeling and as as that was happening you know in the mid 1900s do you then have the overlap of the redlining policies being mm -hmm. put in place you know if we want to talk about like a plaque put a plaque at frontier or put a plaque at um near the zoo about how there's a reason why it's still 98% white homeowners here. Um, you know, it was really only in the, the 70s that those policies were made illegal or lifted. And then even into the 2000s, um, Erie Insurance was sued yeah. for redlining, basically. Now, it wasn't here, it was in New York that they got sued. Um, but that was, I think, like 2003 or four. And, wow. you know, they, they did all the stuff. They got their diversity training and they brought in a consultant and did all that stuff, you know, for uh, PR. Don't even get uh, started with diversity. <laughs> <laughs> Don't even get. Oh, I, was, was, I was tongue in cheek there. But. There was someone who was recently telling me um, that they bought their house. And when they looked at the original housing covenant, that if he had bought his house, 
during that era as a Jewish person. And I think this was Glenwood or somewhere in the city. Yeah, he wouldn't have been allowed Definitely. to buy his house. So yeah, he I've learned to have this. Nice. Yeah. The deeds, oh. it's right on the deeds. Yeah. Well, even and, then, and then they got, oh, go sorry. ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Gonna... They got sneakier about it later on. They would do things like the neighborhood would pool together and they would they would buy the house from under, you know, a black family or yeah. immigrant family or whatever. That happened here in Erie. Yeah, um, I've heard the stories that. with my own ears from yeah. people that have told me that, that yeah. it happened to their family. Right. Because I was going to say, even though these laws are changed and all those things, supposedly, you know, mm -hmm. there's still those, there's still that underlying where like people can still find different ways for people not to get how housing or mm -hmm. there's definitely still that happening. So it's like, I oh, yeah. you know, like, well, the laws have changed. Really, behavior hasn't. So I mean, like, I don't care about the law being changed, but the behavior has not really changed. Right. Now people the are kids of that era are now the people making the decisions. Right. 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 Well, and like you have to think too, sometimes I feel like we forget these policies and practice like we're legal and we're encouraged in a lot of spaces. And so we can't just say like, oh, okay, it's enough to just get rid of it. Like, no, we need to legalize and, and put in policy that actively fights that. Because now there's like, I feel like we just, we haven't gone far enough with some of this stuff. I, I have a friend um, who moved into Edinburgh back in like the the late 80s early 90s uh a friend she's like 60 years old so a friend of mine who's 60 years old and um but when she moved in she was from the south and she called she's a, she's a white lady from the south she calls and they said we have no we have no apartments open there's no open built like there's no open housing anywhere and and she um called she had gotten a job at the university she calls like her the chair of her department or whatever and says like hey I'm trying to move up here so I can start teaching. Can't find a house or apartment anywhere. They say it's all booked up. The person says, oh, that's not true. Go there in person because you have a Southern accent. They think you're black. Go in person and they'll have openings. She goes in person and they fucking had openings. And Yo, because she was see? a white lady, now suddenly, oh yeah, there's like 10 houses, 10 apartments that are all open for you to like go check out. And that happened then. I had another uh, family friend that has told us about a very similar thing when her and her husband moved up there and they thought that they because they were coming from like an urban area that they assumed they were black and then as soon as they went in person and they were white they suddenly suddenly things were open for them and this like this is happening all the time this is happening yeah. all the time and for people to think that somehow just because the, the policies aren't there or right. or it's changed in a name like people are still talking about how like they don't want section eight housing in yep. the township because that'll bring a different element to the community and they don't have the same self-control as us. Code. I, code, I mean, right. Code it, words, I mean, it's yeah. Coded language. Uh -huh. and, and it's so hard to confront because they can make so many excuses and we don't have any laws or policies in place to protect people against it that's, that can say, yeah, you can't say it's it's the way someone keeps their yard when you know that like that is just going to be used very selectively against black and brown families mm -hmm. that don't keep their yard up the way you like or poor families that don't do this the way you like or like it, yeah. Anyway, it just oh, really that bugs me. Yeah, even this is why I worry. And I want to let Jonathan jump in again if he wants to, but even when you have your um ducks together in a row you're like okay I'm a black person who's trying to be a homeowner mm -hmm. and I want to buy in the city there was someone recently who was telling me that she had a hard time 
buying in a certain part of the city because the mortgage brokers literally try to give her a loan for that area. So she had to outright go and buy it out in cash because it's like through the systems which you're supposed to traditionally go and do this, they still have not official redline, but they're still the redlining practices. Mm-hmm. There's still these weird codes. Even now they say like if you um if you live like a block or so in a different area that your your um your appraisal for your house may be different than a street over just because of like historically the effects of redlining. So all this stuff is still ever present. Mm-hmm. And I think they did a study like that recently somewhere. I can't can't remember the place, but it was a biracial couple. The the husband was white and the wife was black. And when the wife went in to try to sell, get the house appraised or something with someone, they like had it like dramatically lower. But then when the husband went in and tried to get it appraised, he got it appraised at like significantly higher. Wow. So like to say that this isn't happening and that there's like not like implicit bias or just like pure white supremacist ideology being perpetuated in these systems is just flawed and wrong. And so we really need to be more actively aware and actively fighting it. And that goes back to like changing conversations, telling complex stories, changing monuments and and education systems so that they are inclusive. Because if we're not actively doing it, it's not going to happen. And we have to talk about it. Um, I use an example in in my classroom. It's about a 15-year-old study out of Harvard. And it talks about sending out applications with the name Emily and Greg and sending out applications with the name um, Jamal and Lakeisha mm-hmm. and everything on everything on the applications are exactly the same other than the name and you know we're talking like double the callbacks for the white sounding names um, and you think that's just for you know that's just for job applications that that implicit racism or explicit racism, mm-hmm. um, you know, that seeps into every aspect of society, including our history and whose stories we choose to tell and whose stories we choose to amplify. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's, there's no part of American society that that doesn't leak into. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the alternative is we amplify our, our voices even louder and we push back on the narratives mm-hmm. and we push back on, you know, the coded language mm-hmm. and we push back on the laws that aren't actually law that they find loopholes you know that mm-hmm. and that's how you start it mm-hmm. um and i'm thankful for you know eerie reader and nick yeah. and matt who edits all my mistakes and and brian and adam who own it like they let us tell these stories in a way that most print media wouldn't Right. They've never told me no to any of my stories and they've never tried to correct or have me soften my stance. Mm-hmm. I wrote the one after um, after everything that happened in May with the protests that went bad um, when nightfall came. I wrote something really angry and I don't like to write angry. Actually, I've never gone back and read it. And they published it without hesitation. Wow. And it got, you can imagine, that was the one that got me the, the nastiest. Mm-hmm. I don't even remember what I titled it. It was something like racism, anti-racism, and where we go from here or something like that. I don't know. But I knew like I knew when the when the protest turned to the riot, I knew the narrative in Erie. I knew what was gonna happen. And I immediately wanted to push back on it because I knew they were gonna use that as an excuse to to vilify 
Black Lives Matter and, and the movement as a whole and everything that happened. And mm-hmm. um, so like alternative media, like your guys' podcasts, like the Erie Reader, that's the stuff that kind of gets us around the barriers of, you know, Gannett, who owns Erie Times News now, yeah. or mm-hmm. the big companies that own the traditional media. Yeah. Um, so I can't stress how important your podcasts and some of the other work that people are doing independently of the, mm-hmm. the big publishers. Um, that's, that's how we, that's how we defeat this. That's how we push back. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. Cause I think, you know, there are, but you know, it's crazy. Cause like, I will speak from, you know, from my own personal experience that even is challenging though. Right. Because, you know, you got, you got, us wanting to tell the real raw story, but there's going to be people that are probably going to push back on like, oh, well, you know, they don't know, or they're just being too harsh. Like, no, y'all ain't doing what you're supposed to be doing. So we have to say, we got to say how everybody is honestly feeling. Like what conversations that we bring to this table are conversations that I'm having behind closed doors, you know, or that you're having with somebody else, Lydia, or that we're all having these conversations. And I just feel like it's, we have to now bring them to like people and and let people think for themselves because we're not saying things to get people to change their, you know, to, we're not trying to be where I would say, we're trying to just, I would say, influence the mind to think, just think about what, you know, what you uphold the people that we are putting in power that like those things, like we just want people to think and have their own perspective rather than being told how to say or feel by other media that will do that to people and will have people think in one way and you just we just want people to have their own their own thoughts on things and we're just sharing our own that's basically what it is um so i appreciate that yeah yeah wow this conversation has been like by far probably one of my favorites and also way better than i expected i feel like just yeah this has covered a lot um so one of the things that we usually ask our guests before we sign off, Jonathan, is what makes Erie yours? So I knew you were going to ask this because I listened, but then I didn't prepare <laughs> for it. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I've I've lived all over northwestern Pennsylvania. Cambridge Springs, Union City. Um, lived in Edinburgh for a few years. Lived in Erie. Lived in Mill Creek. Wow. Um, it, I just think like Erie to me is like the American city. It's got, I, I mean, our, if you look at the demographics, if you look at the history, if you look at, um, you know, the whole creation of the Rust Belt and the, the underdog story that we sort of are, um, we're like the, I don't even know what you'd describe it. We're like the, the epitome of an American city in 2021. Um, we've got all the problems that you see throughout every part of America from, you know, problems you'd see in the South with racism we have here from, uh, you know, anti-immigrant xenophobia we have here to also some just really inspiring people and inspiring leaders and, oh, and the summers here. I mean, like, especially now in February, when I think about June and July, just is there any more beautiful place than Erie in the summer? Um, so yeah, you know, anytime I've thought about, I never thought I would live here. I, I, when I was 18, there were a few things. I, I was going to leave Pennsylvania, never come back, which I did leave for a little while, but then I came back. Um, 
never thought I'd be a teacher. And then here I am, I'm a teacher living in Erie. And yeah, I wouldn't change it. I really love it here. Yes. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And thank you for educating us through the Erie Reader and Rest in Dirt because we need that. We need a different voice. So thank you. You've been listening to the Art Erie Podcast. Community voices unpacking Erie's baggage and speaking truth to power. You can continue the conversation on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at Our Erie Series. Funding provided by United Way of Erie and Ember and Forge. Music produced by Light Shadow. We appreciate you for listening to the Our Erie Podcast. Until next time, take care of yourself. Keep fighting the good fight. Peace.